Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I praise you. You are the God of all the earth. You created everything and everything belongs to you, Lord, including humanity. People often don't like to think that they are yours, especially the lost world, and that you own them, Lord. And yet, it is true. You own them. And yet, they, they rebel against you day in and day out. And you're patient with them. And you're patient with us. And you love us as your children uniquely, Lord. And you give us good things. And you work everything together for our good. What an what a awesome God you truly are. Lord, I pray that you would make this message beneficial to us, especially in our hopes and efforts as we share the good news about who you are with, with our friends, our family members, our co-workers, Lord, those that are close to us and those whom we encounter who we have never met before. Lord, I pray that you'd give fruit to our preaching the gospel, that you would truly cause people to be born again. And that it would be a desire and a passion of all of our hearts to proclaim your excellencies. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, today is going to be the message of evangelism. Or, uh, in other words, what do we tell people when we seek to evangelize them? Or we seek to share our faith with people? What do we focus on? And what do we say? Um... What's the, the central message of Christianity, right? If we're going to sum up Christianity to somebody and call somebody out of their sin, what do we tell them? I mean, is anything sufficient? Can we just, you know, say whatever we feel like saying? But I would say that the Bible really does give us um, a specific message to take to people. And that is, the gospel, right? The good news. The gospel is good news. Even the word evangelism, like I mentioned last time, comes from the same word for gospel. It means to, to proclaim the gospel. And so if we're going to proclaim the gospel, we want to know what is this gospel message, right? What are we supposed to be telling people? And, and that is what I want the focus of the message to be. Now, we have to think about something when we before we kind of get into what the message is and how does the how does you tell me how does the bible describe mankind lost mankind in relation to god what is their state before god can anybody think of anything enemies Enemies. yeah absolutely that's a good one anyone else evil evil mm-hmm they're dead in their sins. Dead in their sins, exactly. They have hearts of stone, right? From Ezekiel. God will promises to make it a heart of flesh. They're hardened against God. Uh, they're deceived by the devil. They're blinded. Their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world to not be able to see the glory of God, right? And so this this truly is every human being by nature. I mean with what Terry said, what I want to focus on is just dead in your sins. Can anybody tell me where that passage is? You remember? Where is where does the Bible say that we're dead? Ephesians 
Yes, Ephesians 2, verse 1. For we're dead in our trespasses and sins, right? And, and the idea, especially communicated throughout the whole Bible, being dead, I mean, think about this. Lost people being so hardened to God are dead in relation to God. They have no ability whatsoever to believe in God, to like God, to find God as necessary for their life. They have absolutely no capacity. And why is that? Their sin. They are evil. They're wicked. They're rebellious. They really hate God by nature. They've come into this world sinful. Right? Now, if we have a dead person laying right here, okay, and we said, hey, you know, if you go to the hospital, they'll make you alive. Would that, is that going to work? No. Why? They're dead, right? Dead people cannot respond. They don't hear anything. Okay, now take this to the lost world and you tell them, hey, you need to believe in Jesus. Okay, right? They have no ability whatsoever to see it as necessary. For all they know, they're deceived. And if they even claim to be believers in Jesus, and but they're not true believers, right? They've made up their own Jesus who just is easy to believe in. Okay, they have no ability. Now that puts everybody on the same playing field. Every lost person. The tribe who knows nothing about God or Jesus in some random island far away, who knows where. And then our next door neighbor who doesn't believe in God. They are dead. They're dead, right? So you have a dead tribal person and you have a dead wealthy, you know, middle class American person. Their, their knowledge about God, I guess what I'm trying to say, has no bearing upon their, their soul. It, they still cannot make a decision for God in their sinfulness. Does that make sense? You guys following me? Okay, so when you... Now, we think about this. We have dead people that we're going out to evangelize in this world, and of whom we were all once dead. So, how on earth can we make anybody alive? Well, we can't, right? Now, if you remember, last time I talked about if we want to be useful and effective, we need to have a certain level of holiness, a certain sort of, not that we have to attain to a certain level, but we have to be conformed to Christ. To the degree in which we're conformed to the image of Christ and we seek to carry out God's means is the degree to which he will use us. Now, at the same time, like I said, we would kind of, piece this apart, we have no ability to cause anybody to be born again. It's all of God. God must awaken and regenerate the lost person if they are going to actually come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and turn from their sin and see God as necessary and see God as beautiful and see Christ's work as personal to them. It, he died for me. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So this should do two things, primarily. The first thing that's 
I'm not going to elaborate on, but it should drive us to prayer, right? If we have no ability to awaken anybody, no matter what we say, they're dead people. If God doesn't move, nothing is going to happen. And so we pray. We are cast upon God to do something. And so we plead with Him that He would have mercy upon people. Okay, that's the first thing. And that's, I mean, important and expansive. But the second thing that I really want us to focus on is we rely upon God to use the means by which He saves people. And the, the Bible only gives us one power of God unto salvation. And what is that? The gospel. Where is that passage at? The gospel is the power of God. Romans 1.16. Amen. Thank you, brother. Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That is, the good news about Jesus Christ has power to save people, to awaken them, not because of anything we do, right? But because that is the primary means by which God has said that when people hear it, He will so work in their heart to regenerate them to receive it and be saved. So, And, and they're saved through faith, right? By grace through faith. So God gives grace to undeserving dead people, to make them alive, to have faith in the word proclaimed. So again, the emphasis on the message of the gospel being the only means by which God supernaturally changes people, right? So it doesn't matter where this person is at. It's not our testimony that's going to save anybody. It's not our... Um, you know, cool stories or experiences. That's not the power of God unto salvation, right? There's a time and a place for those things. Don't get me wrong. It's not bad to share your testimony. I'm not saying that. But we haven't truly evangelized anybody until we have proclaimed to them with words and communicated to them the person and work of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus Christ, primarily to the individual. You're making it personal, okay? Not just a broad generality of God loves you and, you know, and if you, you know, believe him, he'll give you everything you want kind of thing. That's that's just general and broad and that makes no application to the sinner's heart. Now, I emphasize this because there's no technique. There's no um, specific method or gimmick or a certain kind of way to persuade people when we're evangelizing them, whether it be people we know closely and intimately or somebody we just meet, right? If we're going to the university or out to Medina Square or door to door, there's not a specific, you know, okay, one, two, three, four, five. And then if you do everything just right, you'll get this person to just maybe be emotionally moved to want to make a decision for Christ. That's just a bunch of nonsense. But it's so prevalent. It's so prevalent. And it's nonsense. It's just not going to work. They're dead people. Now it is important to get the gospel right. But it's going to look different in different situations. Okay? It's going to look different. 
Now, just to drive this home, I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 through 23. And we have an example of what Paul is doing when he went to the Corinthian church. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, even to baptize, a good thing, okay? But Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel is why Paul was sent anywhere, really. That was his, um, that was his commission from God. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So we see he sought to make the gospel clear. And not confusing. There's a way to speak about Christ that just with with big words that nobody understands. Well, it has no power because they don't understand what you're saying. So there's a need to make it simple and clear to people. Okay, verse 18. Here it is. Romans 1.16 is that quintessential, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But this is so powerful as well. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, combining this idea that there are those whom God has chosen to awaken, and there are those to whom are perishing, and when they hear the gospel, it's folly to them. But when we preach it, nonetheless, we're spreading a fragrance of Christ that leads to death for those people, thus accomplishing God's purpose anyways. There are those whom God has appointed vessels of wrath who upon hearing the gospel only by denying it incur more judgment upon themselves. Okay, and it is a scary thought. But it's also one to say that never think just because a person doesn't come to Christ that God didn't do anything with the message. But nonetheless, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it does awaken sinners to their need of Christ, and they turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ and and so are saved. And we'll, well, I would go on, but in verse 23, I just want to bring this out too. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Driving that home. That to certain men, people, who are not called of God, the gospel will just be folly, foolishness. It will make them angry. They will be upset with it. Because it is offensive. And they don't like it. Because they don't like God. And I've heard Paul Washer say this, but... How the idea how when a lost person here knows more about God, the more they're just going to hate him. And that is so true because they're enemies. And when they see how good God is and how evil they are, it infuriates them. But rather the person who is born again and who's been called by God when they see the beauty and the love of God revealed in the person of Christ through his work, it's, it's captivating. It's how could I not believe and, and have faith in such a God? So we'll go on. Now, 
what are the necessary aspects then to this gospel message? And I've kind of prefaced this, right, kind of a long introduction. But what do we say to people? Okay, here are, I've got what, one, two, three, four, five main points that I think are very important. And again, look differently in every situation. And if you have questions, by all means, please ask. So the first thing we want to talk about with people when we're desirous um, to see them saved and we want to have a spiritual dialogue, we want to communicate to people who God is. Right? Everybody has their own idea or concept of a God. Either they would say, I don't even believe there is a God which we know from the Bible they do, but they suppress that, right? So they know there's a God, and that's going to be something useful to us here in a second to appeal to their God-given conscience. But we must proclaim to them the God of the Bible as true. And it's not, we we don't, um, this is important with people, especially of other religions, not to deal with people as though my God is an option for you to think about, right? This God of the Bible, you know, there's a way to talk about him and say, I know you believe in, you know, Islam and, you know, you have Allah as your God and Jewish people. Oh, well, we actually have the same God. And and you could say, well, you know, well, let me just share with you the God of Christianity and you can think about him. No, this is, you're immediately making God less than he is. There is only one God, beloved. We know that. And our call is to proclaim him and declare him, not offer him up as a suggestion. And this goes for all people everywhere. We simply come with the premise and the idea that this is the truth. There is no other truth. Now, we don't have to be demeaning to people and say... You know, I can't believe you would believe such a stupid religion. That's ridiculous. But we present to them and say, and we plead, this God is the God who created everything. He's the God of heaven and earth. There is no other God besides him. And that's a key point, especially that we see laced throughout the book of Acts. When the apostles went, when Paul went to Rome, for example, in the Areopagus, or however you say that, the first thing he tells them about God is he, he says, you know, I've, I, I perceive you're a religious people. I'm going to declare to you the God of heaven and earth who created everything. And he gives to all men life and breath and everything. He doesn't live in temples made by hands. You see, he comes declaring the true God as this is the God, not these temples that you've built with your hands. Okay. So God as the creator and owner and sustainer of everything is extremely important to get across to people because we would be shocked. I know I was shocked when I first started going out and evangelizing just in this area. How many people truly have no idea about the simplest um, things that as Christians we take for granted that we know about God, that we assume he created everything. And you have many people out there who would claim to believe in God, but would say everything came out of the Big Bang. And it's just like, okay, we got to be real straightforward and, and, and firm with people about who God is. 
And then not just that he's the creator, but also a bit of his character. He's holy, he's righteous. Who can give me some, some characteristics of God? He's omniscient. He's omniscient. Immutable. Immutable. Absolutely. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's loving. I mean, the list goes on and on. We've got to communicate to people. And again, the idea of it's very dependent on who you're speaking to. If you're speaking with a family member whom you see on a regular basis and have plenty of time to invest in a knowledge or, or in speaking with them about God, you have much more time to communicate to them all these different aspects and qualities about God and it's not like you got to go through like some sort of bang, 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 bang with them every single time you see them and you share this like same, you know, scripted version of, of the gospel message, which is okay to do. But with, with people that we're close with, we have time to develop who God is to them. And we should try to do that. We should try to let them know God is not just, you know, some celestial Santa Claus. Right, it's just okay with everything, and you're you're all right to believe whatever you want to believe about God. Rather, we should be constantly trying to proclaim the true Christ using scriptures, in hopes that they will they will see something and say, "Wow, yeah, that makes sense to me." So we've got to we've got to get the character of God across to people. And that's very important because without understanding the true the character of the true God, there's no real gospel message. If God's not angry with sin and will punish sin, well, there's no need to really be delivered from anything from this. There's no need for a savior then, right? So we've got to get people to see that the God of the universe, the true God, is angry with them. And yet at the same time, He's a loving God. He's a patient God. And he's a merciful God. And so that kind of goes into the second point. Now, is there an order to this? I don't necessarily think there's an order, right? Because you might be able to start with God with some people and explaining God to them, and that's wonderful. And But it's not wrong either to start with who is man, okay? Describe, trying to explain to somebody their sinfulness. Now it helps to start with God because then you're giving them something to compare their sinfulness to, right? They're not, you give them the measure, right? The, the standard of righteousness and holiness and it's God and all his perfect goodness. And they've got to be absolutely blameless if they're going to get to heaven. So then when you begin to tell them about their sin, they can see, wow, I don't, I don't match up. If that's the standard, well, I'm in real trouble. Right? And that's what we're trying to get people to see, is that not they just sin here and there, but that they are truly, at the very core of their being, wicked and rebellious against a God who has done nothing but love them and be kind to them, and still holds out his hand to them and bids them to come to him. And every day they, they rebel. And so we want people to understand, yes, we can use the law, and that's a, a good thing. However, I don't want to sell us short either in just saying, hey, you know, again, very circumstantial. With those whom you're closest to, you have a, a way to develop this reality 
that they're just sinful inside and out. Now, if we go out on the street and we're trying to get people to see they're sinners, it's appropriate to say, hey, listen, here's, here's the Ten Commandments, right? I'm sure many of you have heard of Ray Comfort, and I've pointed many people to this, especially when going out for the first time or first few times, so that you can really get a good idea of where you're going. I mean, he's got it. That way of the master thing Ray Comfort does is, is wonderful because it really keeps you on track. It gets all the necessary, out, necessary information communicated to people, and it's helpful. It really is helpful. So to communicate to people the idea of here's the standard God has set, using the Ten Commandments is, is a great thing, to say, hey, it's wrong to lie. Did you know that? Oh, well, I mean, I guess it's wrong. Yeah, I knew that. Okay. And you can say, well, haven't you lied before? And it's like, actually, yes, okay, I have lied before. Now, you will encounter people who say all kinds of things to this. And I, just the other day, I don't know if it was Jeremy with me or Eric, or, but this guy was convinced he had never sinned. Never. He'd never told a lie. He had never had an evil thought. And it, it you know, sometimes you get people that'll mess with you. No, this guy was serious. He was very serious with me. Like, no, I, I would never sin against God. You know, I don't, I don't sin. Are you kidding me? And I'm thinking, oh boy. Like, okay. And so, exactly. And so I'm like, all right, well, do you know what self-righteousness is? Because, and really that's, that's where I took it. Right. And so self-righteousness, thinking you have actually merit to stand before God and say, my life is acceptable to God is the epitome of sinfulness. Really? I mean, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've done that your whole life from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death. You see what I mean? And so, so the more intimately we're acquainted with the gospel, right, the more we're able to tailor it to specific people and scenarios. And so these things are, are great to know and are great to meditate upon and, and, and practice. And the more times you have encounters and you're able to share the gospel with people, these messages, the more naturally and, and the more wisdom you'll have to be able to do this. Right? So we share who is God and who is man. We want people to see. And using scripture as much as you can, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 is an excellent place to take people just from how it describes man. You want people to see that they are that description of no one is good. No, not one. They altogether have turned aside and become worthless. They have the venom of asps under their tongues and, and their way, their feet are quick to shed blood. The way of righteousness they have not known. You are trying to get people to see that is them that God is talking about. So you explain that to them, and then you explain how good and holy and, and loving God is, and how perfectly just He is. He must punish you for your sins against Him. He must. Otherwise, He's not just anymore. And this is a really good point that you can use with all other religions that have gods that forgive them on the basis of anything other than a saving, mediating sacrifice, namely Christ. 
Because if God can forgive them their sins because they do enough good deeds, their God is an unjust God. And he is an evil God. If he's going to let sinners into heaven to dwell in his perfect, you know, good, loving place that they've created in their minds, and yet he just sort of sweeps their sin under the rug, doesn't deal with it. And, and that just covers every, I mean, sort of religion that makes atonement through all manner of ways. They have, I mean, Keith was telling me, like, they were, you know, those Janus, are they called? Janus, yeah. Janus. And they worship basil, the plant. This is, right? Okay. How, a, how any god could accept worship other than, you know, and of course, accept worship from a sinful person, other than through the atoning work of Christ, there's no other way for this to have, for it to be acceptable and that God not be corrupt. Does that make sense? It's like a judge accepting a bribe. It's exactly what it is. You're bribing your God through good works, through giving enough money, through doing enough good deeds, to, to say, just let me off the hook, man. And that is, it's wicked. we know that's wickedness. And even this world knows that that's wickedness. That judges who accept bribes to let guilty people go free are wicked and evil and it's wrong. So that's man, that's God. This is the problem that's created now. God must send men to hell. And this is why declaring the person and work of Christ is absolutely essential. And I have long thought, and I still think about this, and if any of you guys have a good suggestion for this, please let me know. Where if you have like one minute with somebody, perhaps you're in the line at the grocery store and you just want to communicate the gospel to the cashier, how can I clearly get everything in that I need to say? And I will say, you will never go wrong talking about the person and work of Christ to that individual and declaring it as true. And what I mean is, something I say normally if I just have a moment is, you know, God created you to glorify him. Your purpose in this world is to live for God and that is the end to which you were created for. And yet... You don't do that. You don't glorify him like you ought. You don't obey him like you ought. But you know, God still loves this world so much that he sent Christ. He sent Jesus, his own son, God in the flesh, to come down to this world and to live the perfect life in your place and to die in your place. And if you will turn from your sins and believe in him, you can have eternal life. The presentation can be that Short, I mean, it's a 20-second thing, right? And which really encompasses everything. Now, are you, so that's my thing. Are you always going to have time to explain all of this? No, right? And, and that's sufficient. I don't want you guys thinking you have to go through all of these things in very detailed form in order to properly share the gospel. There's time for that, right? There is. And we want to have engaging conversations with people. Sometimes it's just not practical. We don't have the time. And sharing something like that where we emphasize the work of Christ on their behalf is probably the best route to take. Now, is it 
fine to say, you know, I don't know, other things. Sure, as long as it's biblical. I don't want you thinking, even if you tell people like, you know, um, I remember, Lisa, you were saying you told that man, hey, read your Bible. Like, excellent. If you just get people to think for a second, hey, if you just read your Bible, it's all there, right? And you encourage them, hey, please read your Bible. The Lord will use that kind of thing. And he honors the heart that is truly seeking to point others to him for his glory, right? So we always have to keep that in mind. So judgment is coming by which sinners must be sent to hell. And yet Christ comes in the flesh to be their mediator, to offer them a right standing with God. And it is accomplished primarily through his life, which was a sinless one, absolutely perfect and blameless. That is the righteousness that any of us need if we're going to get to heaven. An absolute perfect clean slate before God that has obeyed him at every point, at every second, perfectly. And that's what each person who believes in Christ is clothed with when we speak of the righteousness of Christ being accredited or imputed to our account. That's what that is. God treats us as though we've lived Christ's life, right? And if it's not simply enough to have your sins forgiven, you need that perfect righteousness accredited to your account. So anybody who just says their God will just forgive their sins and they don't have a perfect righteousness to go to God with, it's not enough. It's not enough. It falls short. And then the other thing is God's atoning, or Jesus' atoning work on the cross, wherein God pours out all of the wrath for all of the sins that everyone who has believed in Jesus has committed. God treats Jesus Christ as though... He had committed, even though he didn't commit any sin, but he treats him as though he had committed all of the sins that you have committed in me and punishes Jesus with the full measure of that holy hatred against sin. He bears it up in his humanity and he suffers as a man in our place and as God in our place, right? But it's almost as like the way I've, I've heard this put is if Christ weren't God, there's no way he could have bared the whole wrath of humanity upon his shoulders. It's, though, it's as though his deity upheld his manhood to be able to bear all of the sin and punishment and wrath for an eternity. And it just held him there constant punishment until it was fulfilled and so that's the atoning work where now god through faith in jesus can look at a person as their sin has been taken care of so he can remain just in forgiving you and you have a perfect righteousness before him and that is just a beautiful thing and and we need to communicate this to people so that they can understand, like 1 Timothy 2 says, there's only one mediator between God and men. There's no other person in all of the world or history that has done this for you. There's no other way to get to God. There's no other name by which salvation can be given to you. You have no hope. If you reject this Jesus who offers you freely, by the way, free gift, 
a perfect righteousness and your sin paid for, there's nowhere else to go. You will, you must pay your, for your own sin when you die if you do not accept Christ's righteousness and atoning work. Does that make sense? So that's good. When people say, you know, hey, my God forgives me my sins. Well, there's no mediator. They're just going to be forgiven what? On the basis of their works, like we said before. There's no hope for that kind of person. That is a false God who will do that. Now, now, we proclaim that message to them. And then you have the call, and this is the last thing, to repent and believe. Right? I mean, that is how people get saved. They must put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Right? Alone, only Jesus Christ, like we talked on Wednesday. And, and um, they must repent from their sins. And when we tell this to people, it's two things. We've got to compel them. And I know for me, this was probably the biggest area that I, I still need growth in. But the Lord has, has worked, you know, to, to show me that this is so necessary. Is not We're not just presenting facts to people and to say, hey, here's God and here's Jesus and here's what he's done for you. You must compel the person in, in any way that's appropriate to say, please... This is real. This is true. And I plead with you. I beg you, please believe this message. Believe in Jesus Christ. I don't want you to go to hell for an eternity. I don't. And I care about you, even though perhaps I just met you. Please, I would ask you, consider what we're talking about and put your faith in Christ. Turn from your sins. It's not worth it. You're really, you glory and, and, and revel in things that are shameful for you. And I'm pleading with you to turn from that wicked lifestyle and turn to a God who holds out his hand to you with love and mercy and who will care for you all the days of your life and who offers free salvation for anybody who accepts it. That sort of pleading that says, don't just, these aren't just words for you to go in your one in the ear and out the other. Like, please hear this and take it seriously. Be concerned for your soul. Um, and I often, when I read about like those, you know, George Whitfield's a great example of this. And they would say that when he would preach and he would go into fields, right? Set up a little stand and stand on it and in the biographies, they would always say he would be wiping tears off of his face while he's pleading with sinners to come to Christ. And oftentimes, people were moved by that. That this man, he's not just telling us something about God. He's, he's convinced this is true and he's pleading with us to take it seriously and to actually accept the message that he's bringing to us. And we want to be those kinds of people. I mean... And especially with family members, but I mean, pray that the Lord might move you with such genuine care that tears might come. You know, we want to care so deeply for people and for their souls. And so, I'm uh, out of time, but let me see if I got this. We want to compel people. 
to turn from their sin, to acknowledge that they have sin in the first place, to confess it to God, and to turn from it. And we want to tell people that they must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I know repentance, real quick. Telling people to turn from their sins, even lots of well-meaning Christians have a really hard time because they think, well, they're just going to think this is workspace. But I just want to encourage you, all throughout the Bible, God, especially heavy in the Old Testament through the prophets, tells people, turn from your wicked ways and I will heal you. I will forgive your iniquities if you will turn. And then you come into the New Testament and Christ is saying the same thing. Paul and the apostles give the same message. Turn from your wicked ways. It's not a work-based thing. Repentance is just as much a gift as faith is. And if you turn repentance into a work, well, faith is a work too then technically because if you're telling me I have to believe something, I mean, isn't that a work? But it's they go hand in hand. Genuine faith always produces genuine repentance in a believer. Right? So we want to proclaim faith alone in Christ and yet there is need of repentance. It's like James's argument. So it's perfectly fine to tell people, hey, you need to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Absolutely true. And it's perfectly fine to tell people to repent and Christ will save you. They go hand in hand. One cannot repent without believing in Christ and one cannot believe in Christ without repenting and saying, wow, I've been wrong. I do need to believe in this Christ. And so that is the call that we give to people, right? And we must compel them. Please, trust in Jesus, in this work that he's done for you, and turn from your sins. Confess them to God. They are not worth your life. And God will change your heart to actually hate that sin if you will come to him. And this is especially important for those people. I mean, I've witnessed to a number of homosexuals who tell me, God made me this way. And my response to them is always, God will change you. Like, you don't understand the power of God. When you trust in Christ, He has the, the God who created you has the power to change those evil desires, just like He did for every one of us in our sin. The, our sin becomes hideous to us as a new believer, as believers in Christ. And likewise with the person who's a homosexual, that will become hideous to them if they will trust that God can do it. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay, any any questions or anything before we... Uh, yes? Do you, when you say, say to someone, repent, like if they actually... It seems like they're going to and they want to. Do you do you say like ask God to help you repent or ask God to grant you repentance? Or you just say repent and that's the Holy Spirit's job to like yeah. like God yeah, a person can't repent without like you were saying, they right. can't repent without faith that God has already given them. Right. And God is who grants the repentance. So I right. guess you don't have to say that necessarily. Right. I stumble over that a little bit sometimes because I'm trying to understand repentance like yeah. really something we need. Exactly, exactly. And and I 
you know, and I've thought about this too. I do tell people um, often to ask God. I mean, because when somebody says, I want to believe, how do I believe? And I just say, you just ask God. You just pray to him. Confess your sin to him and ask him to help you to believe and to change your heart. Like that is a great way for people who actually show some concern, right? Um, and yet at the same time, if you just tell them, hey, repent, you know, put your faith and trust in Christ. God will, will use that. That is sharing the gospel. You don't always have to explain every detail, you know. So you can kind of take comfort in that sense. When the apostles came, you know, they were telling people, hey, repent and be baptized. Every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. And then they would say something and they'd be cut to the heart. And it's almost like... They didn't need to explain every last detail of, well, this is exactly how this works. And, and so I don't want us to get caught up in those details because they're good and, and we should know them and there's a place for them. But at the same time, we don't always have opportunity and ability to do it. And so if it were necessary to do that, then a lot of opportunities to evangelize would actually just not be anything, if you think about it. Um, so yeah, God can definitely use just saying, Hey, trust in Christ. And if you have the ability to tell them to just ask God for that, you know, and, and then do that. Absolutely do that. Yeah. Anything we can do to communicate clarity in the way of salvation plainly, we don't want to confuse people and, and people will have genuine questions. Well, what does that mean? Repent. And you can explain to them, you change your mind about the way you're going. Recognize your sin and turn from it. Like, don't just say, oh yeah, I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to keep doing it because I enjoy it. No. Pray that God would change you kind of thing, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. Thanks, Lisa. Any other thoughts or questions, guys? Did I answer that good, by the way? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Brother Kuhn, I really liked your point about um, the the injustice of other gods. I just wanted to let you know that oh, that, was, that was a great point, and um, and you articulated articulated it well. And I will I will most certainly be using the way you articulated it was very clear. I'll be using that in next opportunity that the Lord gives me. Oh, well, hey, praise the Lord, brother. That was clear. I really appreciate that. Praise the Lord.